the Met Gala. For anyone interested in fashion and celebrity culture, it's one of the most exciting events of the year. It's even been described as fashion's biggest night out. As a fashion student myself, I'm always in awe looking at the pictures online. Flamboyant couture gowns, an array of colours, fabrics, dramatic makeup, and there's always an iconic look that just stands out each year. It's a whole performance. Evidently, not just anyone can go. Previous year's guests have even included royals, like Diana and Beatrice, but it hasn't always been celebrity-oriented. When it was established, it was more high-profile people rather than celebrity, and if you weren't aware, it was basically set up to fund the Metropolitan Museum's Costume Institute. For those of you who've ever dreamt about going, it might be a bit of a long shot. The event's invitation only, and even then, you have to pay 30k or 275k for a table. The guests also have to be approved by Anna Wintour, so even if a company buys a table, doesn't mean they get to choose who sits. So why should we care about this seemingly pretentious event we'll probably never be able to attend? The documentary The First Monday in May gives us a little insight into how the Met Gala is planned and the people involved through documenting the 2015 gala. It's portrayed as a revolutionary event for creative exhibition. Baz Luhrmann in the film describes it as a cultural consideration rather than commercial. He then goes on to talk about Anna's gift of bringing together different cultures to cross-fertilise and the mixtures of different people at the event being like a giant aquarium, which seems contrary to the exclusive guest list. On the other hand, couture fashion, like art, has the power to move us and produce emotional responses. So you could argue that it is a cultural contribution. It just begs the question of whose culture is considered. There's a well-known philosopher who proposed a set of ideas explaining behaviours of upper-class society. He suggested that upper-class people employ themselves in unproductive leisure as a sort of display of social status. He gave examples like learning dead languages, games and sports, breeding or caring for unnecessary animals as opposed to labour. Obviously, in understanding his ideas, you need to consider the time period. It was 1899. So some aspects are less relevant. In contemporary society, we obviously have workplace regulations, minimum wage. So this means that working class people have time for hobbies, children engage in sports at school, and in a digitalised society, people can access entertainment and information easily. However, I still think we can apply some areas of the theory to modern day society. Another sociologist who studied similar topics, his name was Pierre Bordeaux, theorised the idea of cultural capital. This basically means when familiarity with the most legitimate culture in society benefits an individual. He pointed out aspects of that like education, intellect, style of speech, dress, and they were then categorised into six different types, but there's three that I want to talk about today. The first one's objectified, which means when a person's property can be transferred for economic profit. 
The next one is embodied, which is basically knowledge that's inherently acquired through socialization in the most dominant class. Thirdly, institutionalized, which is an institution's formal recognition of cultural capital. The link between objectified cultural capital and the fashion industry is clear. Obviously, we know that designer and couture clothing can be sold for high profit. The other two categories I want to come back to later after we talk about the Met Gala a bit more. I remember the first time I heard about the Met Gala, seeing pictures of it through social media and thinking it reminded me of the scene of the capital citizens in the Hunger Games. I think it was for the extravagance of their loud dress combined with this kind of grating pretentiousness. There's this one scene in Catching Fire where Effie's leading Katniss and Peter to the presidential palace as part of their victory tour. Effie leads wearing this hourglass-shaped gown covered in organza embellishments. Then Peter and Katniss follow in equally dramatic garments. They have makeup and their hair done, and as they walk up the steps, you see this huge stone building with Grecian architecture. Here's what she says. The presidential palace, the party of the year. Eyes bright, chins up, smiles on. I'm talking to you, Katniss. Now, there'll be photographers, interviews, everyone will be here to celebrate you. My victors, breathe it all in, children. This is all for you. This scene has uncanny similarities with Met Gala entrances. The dramatic gowns, paparazzi, press presence, immaculate hair and makeup, and the artificiality. Even the way Effie gives Katniss a quick pep talk and informs them on how to behave is how I imagine celebs would be spoken to by managers or PR representatives before making their entrance. In addition to that, it's interesting how Katniss and Peter, since they come from poor districts, they're not used to this type of artificial environment. They don't present the same enthusiasm or excitement as Effie. The character traits she embodies project the nature of the people in the capital. She has an overbearing emphasis on etiquette, propriety and presentation with no morals or regard for life. She's a silly and comical character, the way that she poses as a mentor for district children, even though she's bringing them directly to their death. It symbolises the facade and superficiality of the wealthy and powerful in the film. After watching it, I found out that some of the looks worn by Effie were actually designed by Alexander McQueen. Like if you remember the butterfly gown she wore whilst naming the tributes, that was McQueen. McQueen's obviously a very high profile couture designer and many of his pieces have been worn to the Met Gala. Jessica Parker, Naomi Campbell and Daphne Guinness, just to name a few. The cultural symbolism in this kind of dress is reflected in how both environments mirror each other. To see these kind of garments in regular everyday environments or worn by regular people would seem absurd. This is because they connotate wealth, power, performance, all significant themes in the Hunger Games and the Met Gala. 
Going back to Veblen's theories about conspicuous leisure, we can apply his ideas to the kinds of couture garments worn at the Met Gala. Most of the dresses are impractical to wear because many of them have structured boning, heavy embroidery or hold a lot of fabric. For example, in 2015, Rihanna wore a fur-lined yellow dress. You might have seen it before since it went viral and was the subject of various memes. The reason being, the dress had a 16-foot train and weighed £55. It required four men just to carry the train up the stairs. Cultural connotations surrounding this kind of impractical dress link back to 18th century garments. Back then, women wore restrictive corsets, bustles. There were so many components to their outfits that they needed maids to help them get dressed. The dresses were completely impractical for manual labour. So essentially, what Veblen said was that they suggested excessive leisure and acted as a way of showing social status. I also couldn't help but note the similarities between 18th century women being assisted by maids to get dressed and Rihanna being assisted by the staff of the event as though they were some kind of servants. It highlights her status and social significance. Yet in the pictures publicised of Rihanna waltzing elegantly down the red carpet, you don't see any of these men, most likely because it would ruin the facade. Obviously, fashion's more diverse today because of mass production and Rihanna's dress would be impractical for anyone to wear in day-to-day life. But the average person would be unlikely to go to an event that required a dress of that calibre. In addition to that, the subject of who each attendee is wearing, as in what designer, is always a topic of press articles. Most of the wider population and average working people would never be able to afford clothes by high-profile designers. And even if they could, it certainly wouldn't be couture garments. As part of the research for this, I conducted a focus group where participants had to choose statements they felt were most relevant to the contemporary fashion industry. All of the participants chose either elitism or exclusivity as one of their options, and two-thirds selected luxury. It's important to note that all of the participants were fashion students, but I think it makes it more telling of how the industry functioned, because we've experienced it firsthand. It is exclusive, the fashion industry, because not everyone can afford to be in it. And whilst you can make fashion from not an awful lot, different people will consider different things to be fashion. It's only the people that kind of have control over the fashion industry can make those rules. Looking at the points they've made, you can relate it back to Bordeaux's idea of embodied capital. It's the prominent and powerful figures leading the high fashion industry that decide what's considered to be fashion. This then filters down through lower market high street and is received by consumers. That means that people well involved with the high fashion industry and socialised in those environments have an advantage. It also works in cohesion with institutionalised capital because universities and other institutions that are well known for fashion work as a gateway for industry links and exclusive events. For example, Central St Martins are given more places at Graduate Fashion Week than any other university. 
also elitist in the sense of like you know people who go to these better unis and spend a lot more money on their collections are most likely to have better outcomes and then get hired hoity-toity kind of it's who knows who you know on the on the front row it's very elite it's not it's not something I feel I can associate myself with fashion is the emergence of inclusivity and exclusivity anyone's free to express themselves through clothing yet the nature of the industry is elitist and cutthroat it's also important to note the separations between clothing and fashion since what is considered fashion is defined by the most dominant culture in society some people can't afford the luxury of fashion that can only afford clothing I don't think Devil Wears Prada for some companies is actually that far of a cry from what it's actually like. Coming back to the initial topic, evidently the Met Gala does present skilled craftsmanship in the work of its designers, but it's also a reflection of the wider fashion industry, even society as a whole. The Met Gala represents cultural capital's relevance in the contemporary fashion industry. Garments most everyday people could never dream of owning, run by an institution which is only inclusive of A-list celebrities and members of high society, is built around the values and beliefs of high culture but set up as a performance. It's a frivolous event designed for us to watch in awe and maintain a consensus of the lifestyle we should aspire for the people we should be like and who we should admire. On the opposition, coming back to the Hunger Games, the actual games run by the capital that are the main plot of the film are the reverse of this. Poor people participate to make entertainment for the rich. Both of these scenarios, poor people don't benefit from. So yes, the Met Gala has contributed culturally, but only in maintaining the most elite culture in society.